service. So glad to uh, see each of you here. We've got a great crowd this morning. Uh, very excited uh, to continue our new series, House Rules, this morning, a study through uh, Paul's first pastoral epistle to Timothy. 
uh, and we're in our, what we're calling our second message because the first message took two parts. Uh, so this is part two. We'll continue this morning. Again, glad that you're here. Uh, I'm Larry Nelson, the pastor of Community Church. And again, if, uh, especially if you're a guest with us this morning, I want to say thank you for being with us. You're a very special part uh, of what goes into our planning and praying and preparing for this service. And uh, in the pew back in front of you, you would find a, uh, what we call our welcome home card, just a guest card. I'd like to ask you, if you would, to fill that out. We'd love to have a record of your visit with us. Uh, we pray over those that God brings our way, whether you're just passing through on vacation or maybe searching for a place you can call home. And then uh, I'd like to send out a letter telling you a little bit more about our church. So if you would, uh, take a few moments to fill that out. You can use the back of the card uh, either for a prayer request or if you have any, any questions. You can either leave it uh, on the pew beside you uh, or you can carry it out with you as the service uh, uh, is over. And there's a table uh, just to the right of the doorway as you exit where we have our offering box. We won't be passing an offering plate this morning. Uh, that's not because we're not interested in, in the offering, those of you who called this home. Uh, so if you're a part of our family, be sure and stop by that table. If you're a guest, this is really all we want from you. Uh, additionally, I just want to mention this morning uh, a couple of things that we're, uh, as we're uh, rolling back into some bit of normalcy, uh, we typically have a newcomer's reception. Uh, that's a, an opportunity to meet uh, with our pastoral staff, me in particular. Again, it just gives me a chance to interact with people who are new here for the first time. Uh, and uh, that immediately follows the service uh, downstairs. Just a brief Q&A, I get to share a little bit about our mission, vision, and values. And then once a month, on the second Sunday of the month, we have a luncheon uh, that uh, represents our membership class, our covenant membership class. Uh, we ask that you sign up for that so that we have enough food. So if, uh, if wherever you happen to be in the process, uh, when you get ready, uh, the membership uh, sign up uh, is in the foyer, and you can stop by there, just jot your name down, we'll get you some more information about when that will, will be coming up. And then I just want to mention what I've mentioned to you this past week. Uh, we just uh, want to finish strong financially. Uh, we're very grateful to God for uh, the position we're in. Uh, however, we are trending a little bit behind. So just praying that, uh, that uh, God will continue to bless. And just, again, if you weren't adversely affected, would like to ask you if you would prayerfully consider helping us finish strong uh, by maybe going over and above uh, what you typically give. And then uh, as ministry is uh, the byproduct of the body of Christ serving one another, there are a number of areas uh, in our church where uh, we need volunteers. One of the things that we lost in the process of COVID-19 is, uh, you know, nobody was around except for the staff. And as we're starting to ramp back up, particularly with our media ministry in the back that Emily leads, uh, our children's ministry, as well as our student ministry, uh, and then life groups as well, we, we just need volunteers to be involved. So prayerfully consider jumping back in and helping us with that uh, so that we can continue the good work that God's called us to do. Now I want to ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Again, thank you for being here, and I pray that God uh, speaks to you in the course of our time together this morning. Father God, we come into your presence this morning grateful uh, for um, who you are, that you have revealed yourself to us, that many of us who uh, gather this morning uh, have encountered you by way of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and our lives have forever been changed. Father, for those who might be here this morning and, and they haven't taken that step, they, uh, they don't know you personally, I pray, God, that you just reveal yourself to them clearly through the gospel uh, in the course of our time together. As we worship you, Father, we want to acknowledge that every good and perfect gift has come to us from you, mm. and we want to ascribe worth to you because you are worthy to be praised. And then, Father, we ask as we uh, open your word and, and we look to your word that it would be your spirit who speaks to us, not... Uh, not merely the words of a man, but that the power of your word would uh, speak to us 
change us, challenge us, and leave us prepared to walk with you uh, in the course of a new week in the world that you've planted us in. God, we thank you again for your great love for us, and we ask all this today in Christ's name. Amen.
<laughs> it is Pastor Appreciation Sunday, um, but we appreciate you more than just playing that song. Yeah. Just so you know. <laughs> On behalf of the, uh, truly, <laughs> more than just one Sunday. <clears throat> On behalf of the board and the staff, we'd like to present you with a little gift. We want you to take a, couple, a little retreat to Mount Princeton Hot Springs, the two of you. Thank you. Because um, we really do appreciate you. We appreciate your leadership. We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for all you do, not just on Sunday. Will you join me in prayer? <laughs> I know we're probably breaking some rules, but <laughs> let's pray. Father God, you call all of us to be a part of your family, <clears throat> but you call a few to be pastors. You call very few to be shepherds. And we know the love that Gala and that Larry have for you and for each of us. We thank you that you orchestrated that he would be here at this time and that they would be the ones that help lead community church in this valley forward for you. It has been a crazy, crazy year, and we know that we have to rely on you, but we are thankful for the leadership that we have. In Christ's name, amen. My turn? <laughs> Thanks, brother. <clears throat> well, I was expecting one more song, uh, so I was preemptively trying to figure out how I was going to shorten my message, but since we didn't do that third song, just joking. I'd like to ask you to, oh, it's time for uh, children's ministry and student ministry to head on out, and uh, we'll see you guys in a little while. Thought I had a little more time to get rid of that cough drop. I'd like to say I appreciate you praying for me. Um, most of you know I had uh, an unexpected uh, health thing this past week. A week ago and um, <clears throat> had a seizure and had to be uh, taken to the emergency room in Grand Junction and uh, still trying to figure out exactly what caused that none, none of the obvious things which is a, a yay God so it may just be uh, a, a collision of uh, minor factors and hopefully that'll never happen again uh, I will tell you that uh, I, I feel shaky this morning so um, my prayer is to preach God's word without collapsing on the stage, because uh, none of you want to see that. <clears throat> I want to ask you to open your Bible to 1 Timothy. Uh, as we've established in the first two weeks of our new series, House Rules, the Apostle Paul is writing to his young protege, Timothy, uh, and to the church in Ephesus, which Paul planted 
filled with believers that Paul doubtless led to the Lord himself and baptized, and he's warning them to resist the um, preoccupation with pluralistic philosophies that exist in Ephesus, quite common uh, to the city of Ephesus, along with pagan worship. He's challenging them to reject false teaching that's even risen up within the local church that's infiltrated uh, the redeemed, the body of Christ, and to hold unswervingly uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel alone uh, that we have hope of redemption, that we uh, are adopted into God's family, that we have the promise of an eternity with him apart from the gospel, Paul is going to continue to underscore we are lost to a world of uh, man-driven ideas. His letter is meant to educate and embolden both the pastor and God's people to, as he will write in chapter 3, verse 15, to know how you ought to behave in the household of God. And all the more important that you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ, as God's children, know how to conduct ourselves together because we have a witness in the watching world around us. So if we know how to behave in the household of God, then there's a pretty good chance that we will know how to behave out there in the world and God will use us to point other people to Christ. As your pastor, I cannot underscore how strongly I believe God desires to speak to us through this series. And subsequently, I know that our enemy opposes what we're trying to cover. He has a vested interest in many of us staying asleep, but it's my job to wake us up uh, and to see us become, as Paul was interested in Timothy and the church at Ephesus, all that God intends the local church to come. I have been praying, uh, along with other people, uh, our staff and our leaders pleading with God that he would give to us 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9-10, through 10, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, all that God has prepared for those who love him, things which he's prepared to reveal to us by the working of his Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit's message to Timothy and the Ephesus church profoundly relates to our church and our shared lives. If we are attuned, if our hearts are dialed in and we are committed to God's word to, to live as he has called us to as individual Christ followers and as a church, uh, I believe that we will discover the same timely wisdom that every generation of the church is destined to find if only they will rely upon God's word. Uh, truths that will help us navigate our way into his will. Truths that will draw sinners uh, to repentance. Truths that will, uh, will refine the redeemed. Truths that will sober us to the urgent need uh, to stand as a countercultural witness for the cause of Christ in the world in which we live. Our city, our county, Colorado, our country, around the world, as far as God might take any one of us and allow us to have influence, if only we believe God for what it is that he wants us to be and do. And though there's plenty of evidence to suggest that what is most desperately needed in our world in this hour is more of God, little should be as disconcerting and alarming uh, to believers and to the church as the recent findings of uh, a study called The State of Theology uh, that was conducted by Ligonier's Ministry. It's a survey done among identified evangelicals. 
Just one statistic alone ought to alarm us um, and underscore why Paul wrote the words he wrote to Timothy. Uh, Today, 42% of U.S. evangelicals, which I'll define in a moment, agree with the following statement. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. This is not a survey conducted among people at large. This is a survey conducted among those who attend evangelical churches. And here's how the study defines evangelicals. They are defined by four statements. First, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Heads nodding. Second, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Third, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only that could remove the penalty of my sin. And fourth, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So how could people who are in churches that hold to those four statements believe that God is accepting worship from everyone, Christians, Judaism, Islam, though in the cults as well? Well, the only explanation could be that there are people in evangelical churches who don't actually know what they believe. They don't actually know what God's Word teaches, which is why, friends, I continually ask you to become people with me of the book, to open your Bible, to engage God's Word. It's His love letter to you. And apart from the truths of Scripture, we are apt to the very same thing that plagued the church in Ephesus. We are apt to drift from the truth. So Paul writes his letter to Timothy, and one of the things he wants Timothy to do is to challenge this idea that there's a different doctrine being taught uh, in the church. That is uh, something different than, as he says uh, in the opening verses of the chapter, different than the stewardship from God that is by faith. For our purposes today, I'll simply illustrate it this way. Paul is going to tell us that the only hope of forgiveness, of a relationship with God, of adopted into his family, uh, of an eternity with him, is Christianity. Christianity stands alone. On this side, Paul is going to say, along with the misrepresentation of those who sought to teach the law, is everything else. You say, well, that's not fair. I mean, you can't compare all those world religions. Paul is going to. Paul is going to say, it matters not what we're talking about. Everything stands in opposition to Christianity. Because Christianity is God-centered. That means, among other things, that it is authored by the Father. It's God's plan. It is atoned for by the Son. Atoned means paid for, purchased. Third, it is applied by the Holy Spirit. Which means that you and I have nothing to do with getting into Christianity. It is all of God's doing. And this is Paul's whole point. That the introduction of false teaching within the church is pointing us to some other path. And, and everything else that we could name over here is man-centered. Every religion, every other religion, every other 
concept, every other philosophy for living is a man-centered idea about how you and I can get to God. And the gospel clearly says there's nothing that you and I can do to change ourselves. The problem is in here, not out there. And every man-centered, man-focused path to God will ultimately damn us to an eternity separated from a God who loves us. Why? Because only He, only He can do the saving. Which means that when it comes to our part in this, all that we can do is accept to be... um, Excuse me, I've lost my train of thought. To, to accept uh, the gospel, uh, to be altered by it, life change. My problem was I was trying to stick with my alliteration of A's. <laughs> to, be, to accept, to be altered by, and then to live a life in adoration for what he's done. It is all of him from beginning to end. This is what Paul is going to say uh, as we uh, look at his words today. And it's all to flesh out what he told us in verse 5, which is the aim of our charge is love that issues from a a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is God's goal for us. And so as he works his way uh, through where we ended last week, he comes up to verse 11 and says, this is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And between verses 11 and 12, as Paul is pinning this letter to the church at Ephesus, he is overwhelmed with a flood of emotion for all that God has done for him and for you and I in this world. And so he begins uh, his second movement in the passage. Great movements in this world usually begin with a strong leader, and Paul is certainly that. As I already told you, he planted this church. He led most of the people in this church to Christ. Um, The church in Ephesus exists because God used Paul uh, to bring it about. And though he has been strong in this letter to this point, uh, he is going to begin in verse 12 to distance himself from being recognized as the focus, as being important, as though somehow this is the result of him. As we work our way uh, through today, verses 12 through 20, Paul in his uh, efforts is going to make three things perfectly clear. Number one, that the focus should not be upon him. He has authority, that's why he speaks, but he is not the object of uh, focus. Second, uh, he's going to exalt Jesus Christ. And third, though it seems like he's stepping away from it, he's going to continue prosecuting his charge against false teachers. He does so with a testimony, a trust, and a caution about treason. First, the testimony. As Paul uh, works his way through uh, an understanding, a proper understanding of the law, which we talked about last week, and recognizing that the law prepares us to recognize that we are condemned already and that we need to turn to uh, receive God's mercy and grace through the gospel, he's suddenly filled with worship. And so Paul is going to tell his testimony, and it's bookended uh, by uh, an, an anthem of praise to Jesus Christ. And what Paul is going to help us recognize is that the gospel entrusted to him was first and foremost a gospel he had experienced. Having recounted God's work in and through Jesus and how he uses the law, Paul then suddenly begins with praise. And in his opening salvo in verse 12, he's going to highlight three positive blessings that, come, that have come to him through Christ. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. 
because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul says there's three things I, I've received from the Lord. Number one, he gave me strength. This is enabling grace. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where he, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Friends, if you would have a relationship with God, you will not find it over here. Over here is all about you performing. All about, over here is all about you working. And you'll never get there. You're not that good. Over here, it begins with grace, the free gift of unmerited grace. Paul says, this is something I received from the Lord. It enabled me. Romans 5, 2 says, through him, that is Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. He, second, he says, he considered me faithful. This is entrusting grace. Jesus saw something in Paul uh, that motivated him or moved him to shed grace in Paul's direction. He considered Paul faithful, not because Paul was faithful, but because Jesus knew how he planned to use Paul. And so he shed grace his way. Third, he says, he appointed me to his service. This is employing grace. No doubt he's referring here uh, to his role as the apostle to the Gentiles. The word he uses for servant is the lowest form of servant. It means someone to wait tables. And what Paul discovered uh, in Jesus Christ's gift of grace was a calling to be a servant. And not just any kind of a servant, a servant who would pay a very high price. He says in Galatians 6, 17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul received these things and it moved the, the course of his life. And I would suggest to you that rather than Paul being extraordinary to us, he should be inspiring as to how we ought to live. Because friends, if you know Jesus, then you've met a Savior who gives you enabling grace and entrusting grace and an employing grace. Yet some of us are content to run our own business. And it has nothing to do with the Lord's work. Right now, we might be thinking, well, Paul was special. He was a cut above. That's obvious, isn't it? He was a highly trained lawyer. He was a natural-born Roman citizen. He was an up-and-comer. Everybody had great expectations in the Sanhedrin for the Apostle Paul. He was, he, he was articulate. He winds up planting churches all around Asia Minor, writing two-thirds of the New Testament. Maybe Paul is just different. But because Paul doesn't want us to focus on him, he continues by citing three negative descriptions of his own character. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. A blasphemer is someone who speaks evil of the Lord, but not just that, someone who incites other people to do the same. This is what Paul did prior to coming to Christ. He wanted, he wanted to curse Jesus, and he wanted those who professed to follow him to do the same. Paul, in doing this, had shattered all of the Ten Commandments, which is ironic because he was a, he was a Judaizer. He considered himself to be a master in the law. He's shown us that he, he could talk about the law, but he did not know Jesus. He was a blasphemer. Second, he says, I was a persecutor. And all the while he was persecuting the church, he thought he was just persecuting the church, but he finds out on the road to Damascus that it's actually Jesus Christ whom he's persecuting. And then third, he says, he was an insolent opponent, someone who had deep-seated hostility 
toward God. So how did this happen? How did this person, uh, these negative characteristics, how did this person become blessed by Jesus? Well, it wasn't because of who Saul was. It wasn't because of who he became as Paul. It had everything to do with God. It had everything to do with Jesus Christ. Paul continues in verse 13, second half, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. You see, he was no different than the false teachers who want to be experts in the law, but they don't even know what they're talking about. This is who Paul was. And the reason why Paul wants to make this, uh, wants to fight this fight, the reason why he wants to uh, push Timothy to challenge false teachers is because there's only one way that you and I become the people we were created to be. There's only one way whereby you and I can experience the love of God for us and forgiveness and adoption into his family. And it's not by human high-mindedness. It's not by humanism. It's not by pluralism. It's not by accepting everything. It's about taking God's word at heart and recognizing that God has vested everything in his son, Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. First, Paul says the actual phrase in Greek is, I, I was be mercied. I was be mercied. Instead of leveling on Paul, the persecutor of Jesus, the persecutor of his church, the blasphemer, instead of leveling on Paul what he deserved, mercy withheld from him what he deserved. Friends, as you said here this morning, the same mercy that came Paul's way, God has aimed your way. He's been overlooking things in your life for a long time. Why? Because he loves you. He created you for a relationship with him. And in order for you to get there, he has to give you mercy. He has to show us mercy. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 says, Now the law came to increase the trespass. The reason why the law exists is to prove that we're lawbreakers. You have your law, I have mine. Mine's speeding. It's just one of them. Laws exist to prove to us in God's economy that we cannot perform them perfectly. Paul continues in Romans, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, the law is not given. This is the problem the false teachers had. This is the problem of everything else that we might say is a path that leads to God. If, it, if it's based upon you, you'll fail. You'll never perform it. You'll never get there. Part of the reason why that's true is because you're sinful. The other part of that reason is, is because God's not the author of this path. He's the author of this path. He's righteous and perfect in a way that we never can be apart from his working. Paul says grace overflowed. Um, the word there is to super abounded. Where, where sin uh, was present, grace was present all the more. Where sin abounds, where, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. It overflowed with faith and love. These are the true marks of Christianity. So you're sitting here this morning, I, do I, am I on this board? Is this my path? Well, ask yourself this question. Do these marks typify your life? Faith in Christ, 
Faith in Christ that, like Paul, impacts how you live and love. These things overflowed because of grace into Paul's life. The thing that we ought to be inspired by as we consider the Apostle Paul is that he never lost the wonder that God could and did save someone like him. That's why he says he's the foremost of sinners. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And what happened when divine compassion came Paul's way, as uh, we see it in this passage, is that grace flooded faith with faith, a heart that was previously marked by unbelief. Grace flooded uh, faith into a heart that was previously marked by unbelief. And then second, uh, he says, grace uh, flooded with love, a heart that was previously marked by hatred. Paul hated before, and now he loves. In a word, the law, which Paul was a master at, was meant for the condemnation of sinners. Jesus Christ came for the saving of sinners. And this is why it is so important a fight for the Apostle Paul. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's not bragging about himself. He's not pointing to himself as, as somehow achieved something. Everything is pointing to Jesus. Friends, if your life is not pointing to Jesus, then you haven't gotten it yet. It's not about you. It's about him. He continues, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. 1 Corinthians 15, 9-10, he writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. Paul's testimony, that the truth takeaway for us, would be to recognize that the grace of God is, more, is powerful enough to redeem the worst of sinners who are willing to repent. This is the incomparable power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that stands apart from everything else we can compare it to. The question for you and I is, from Paul's testimony is, has the gospel washed over us like that? Can we say with Paul, the grace of God to me was not in vain? Friends, there's much at stake for you individually in answering that question. And, and I would say there's much at stake for all of us that we each be able to answer that question as Paul did. And not just us, but the lost world around us. We will never be what we are called to be if there's only 20% of us who are saying, God's grace to me was not in vain. We will only be as strong as our weakest link. And so my job is to call you to wake up and say, I will live a life in such a way that people will know the grace of God over me was not in vain. I will live a life that points to Jesus Christ as the author and perfecter of my faith, as the very air that I breathe. I will not substitute him for the things that the world is chasing after. I'm not denying that God has given. He's the, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. But we've allowed the enemy to pull us off sides. And in, in doing so, we've blurred our testimony as Christ followers. 
Paul assured Timothy and the false teachers and the entire church at Ephesus that his authority to preach the gospel had nothing to do with his own gifts or greatness, but they came from God, whose grace had overcome his sinfulness and his inadequacies. This is what God is calling us to, to be lost of ourselves, as John said, for Jesus to increase while all the while I am decreasing. And I'm just telling you, that's not what college was telling us to do. That's not what Madison Avenue is marketing to us. It's not what the world around us is telling us we ought to do. We ought to be going for the gusto, living the best life we can, chasing everything that we can, instead of asking, Lord, what is it that you want to do with my life? Whatever else I accomplish in life, if I've, if I've not lived for you, if I've not done what you desired for me, then I can't say that, that your grace over me was not in vain. This ought to motivate us, brothers and sisters. It ought to be that, something that, that we think of every morning when our feet touch the floor. What does it look like for me to, to live the grace of God today, to show to those around me that Jesus Christ is my hope, that he's my redeemer, that he's my game changer. This is what Paul is saying. And so he condenses an articulation of the gospel in verse 15 when he says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, again, of whom I am foremost. I'm going to ask in a minute, did could Paul really have meant that, that he was the foremost of sinners? But, but let me unpack this condensed articulation of the gospel, which is very close to what the angel told Joseph when Jesus was going to be born. First of all, he identifies the source of our hope, Christ Jesus. You will not find him over here. He is beyond compare. He does not, he does not fit in this crowd. It's not a matter of, of weighing him among everyone else to see who you like best. As C.S. Lewis says, you must answer this question one day when you stand before God. Is Jesus Christ who he says he is? Is he Lord, lunatic, or a liar? The question that Jesus asked his followers is the same question uh, you and I are being probed with by the Holy Spirit. Who do you say that he is? And if he is not the King of kings and the Lord of lords, if he is not your Redeemer, then you're awash over here in everywhere else land. And this will not change your life. Only Jesus will. Jesus came into the world. This implies his incarnation. It implies his atonement, that he was coming for a purpose. Uh, it also speaks to his preexistence. You and I were born into this world. Jesus came into this world. There's no other one. There's no one else. No matter how lofty their ideals, no matter how compelling, no matter how large the following, no one else came into this world but the one who made it, Jesus Christ, the very word made flesh to dwell among us. He came into the world. This refers to the, the whole of, of humanity, of whom Paul says, I'm the foremost in need of Jesus. He came to save sinners, to deliver us from death, from darkness, from sin, hell, judgment. But that must be received personally. Paul says in verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the greatest, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him 
for eternal life. Paul sets himself up, not just for Timothy, but for you and I as, uh, as a prototype, as a role model, as an example of what it looks like to encounter the risen Christ and see your life utterly reoriented. Now, God's going to use you according to the way he designed you. Saul, prior to knowing Christ, winds up doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, Paul winds up pretty much the same way Saul was. It's just it's been redeemed and motivated by love and filled with faith. God's not out to change your personality. He is about changing the course of your life, the trajectory of how you live. And if, friend, it's for only one person, your spouse or, your, or your, uh, one of your children or a neighbor that lives on the street, it, it, give yourself uh, to following Jesus and to being used of his grace and you will not regret it when you stand before him. And anyone you might reach will spend an eternity thanking Jesus and thanking you for being real, for being authentic, for being focused on what was at stake. Now, could Paul really mean he's the worst? I think the point Paul is making is that the Lord was patient. Uh, If the Lord was patient with the worst of sinners, then he can be patient with you. In fact, he's been patient with you. Some of you have heard the gospel time and time again, and and you've walked away as though it's going to continue to be offered to you. I would encourage you not to do that. None of us knows. None of us knows. My back is black from falling. Could have snapped my neck. Life could be over just like that. And if all you have to point to is everything else, friend, eternity is going to be a rude awakening for you, especially in light of the fact that God loves you and his patience and his mercy have been coming your way for a long time. And he's already done In Jesus Christ, the gift of grace that makes all things new for you. Brothers and sisters, some of us, we're content to have Jesus on our resume. We've got a little fire insurance and we're excited that one day we'll stand before him. But the rest of the time, we're managing Monday through Saturday on our own. He has no say-so in it. Sometimes we don't even come to church. It's one of the reasons why our, our leaders are praying for a comeback. Why? Because there's no... There's nothing out there in the great big bad world to be afraid of. No, there's, there's lots of things to be afraid of, but nothing, nothing compares to worshiping Jesus. This is why Paul, when, when he thinks through the process, is just motivated to worship Jesus. Why would we miss it? It's what we'll spend eternity doing, and every moment we have the chance to do so here is just an opportunity to make him known. I think Paul meant what he said. I think it's the course of the Christ follower who really comes to know Jesus. That the the more you come to know Jesus, the the more you come to understand how desperately you needed him. And if you're not in touch with that, then talk to someone who is. I'll share with you. I don't mind. The more I come to know the supremacy of Jesus Christ, his excellence and his praiseworthiness, the more I come to recognize how desperately I needed him, even now, how he pulled me. I think Paul meant it full well. John Stott said, It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. If you're not in tune with your need for Jesus, then you haven't encountered him, friend. Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus, and when he got his sight back, he would never forget it. He stands as an example to us. 
The purpose of salvation, whether Paul's or ours, is to display God's grace, power, and patience, and to so produce a transformed life, and as Jesus told the woman at the well, a true worshiper of God. Friend, has that happened to you? Have you had an encounter with the resurrected Christ that has transformed your life? Have you seen the power and the patience of God over your sin? I mean, can you say like me, man, I have sin struggles. God's graduated me to different ones over the course of, but but every once in a while, when I'll, I'll take three steps forward and two steps back, I'll do it again. And I'm, I'm surprised all over again that he hasn't just swatted me. Then just said, you know what, I'll find somebody else. It's his grace, and I'm, I'm, I'm compelled to have it not lavished on my life in vain. And I don't want that for any of us. We cannot be the people God's called us to be. We cannot be the church we are meant to be if we're just content to live in the world of everything else. It must be God and God alone It must be Jesus and him alone. This is the only way whereby we find the grace uh, that enables us to accept by grace through faith, uh, to be altered by his grace, uh, to live in adoration. Every day ought to be motivated, as Paul sets the example, by worshiping him. So much so that he bookends it with a doxology. He's not even done. We've got a long way to go before the letter's over, but he breaks into doxology. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever shouted that? It feels really good. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is the sovereign epic maker. And if you know him, he'll change the course of your life. And you'll find yourself learning how to live in such a way that his grace over you is not in vain. Because of God's grace, Paul was a blasphemer no more. He then moves to trust. Back to a challenge to Timothy. And we discover here that embedded in the gospel experience is an enlistment to fight the good fight. I'll I'll be quick. He says to Paul, or to Timothy, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Uh, The amplified translation of the Greek is to commit yourself fully as a soldier for good in this present campaign. Timothy's commission was twofold. One, Paul had acknowledged him, but second, we find out here that prophecies had been spoken about him at his calling to ministry. And what Paul says is that uh, because of these, you need to wage a good warfare. And he says two things define that. Number one, holding faith. Uh, Holding faith means to keep the faith. It means to hold fast to Jesus. It means to be so grounded in the truths of God's word that you're not subject to to being misled by pluralism, by tolerance. There are many, even within the evangelical church, who have succumbed to this idea that in the end, because God is love, he's just going to accept everybody in. It doesn't matter what path they take. Friends, as I told you last week, God has not bet it all on Jesus Christ only to see people sidestep him. 
Philippians tells us that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be no Buddha, no Buddha, no Islam, no honorable mentions. It will be Jesus and Jesus alone. And this is what Paul is challenging Timothy to, to hold on, to, to hold steadfast to his faith in Christ. He's going to tell him throughout this book that he also needs to hold un, unwaveringly uh, to God's word to guard it in chapter 6, verse 20, to acknowledge, uh, to, uh, to be nourished by it, chapter 4, verse 6, and to preach it in chapter 4, verse 13. And then he couples that with a good conscience. A good conscience is the result of a pure life. Conscience is a God-given device uh, for in every human mind that uh, reacts to our behavior. It either accuses us or it excuses us. Paul says we need to learn how to cultivate a good conscience. It's part of how God is trying to point you toward Jesus. It's how God is trying to lead you into a life of grace. John Calvin said a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. What we believe, or or what Paul was saying uh, to Timothy here in particular, he also speaks to believers in general. Listen, If you call Jesus Christ your Savior today, you should be excited that he calls you to an abundant life of love and peace and joy and communion with him. But for the student of Scripture and anyone who's paid close attention uh, to our Savior Jesus Christ, it's impossible for us to miss that there's another side to the Christian life. It's called warfare. Upon salvation, a believer enters a lifelong fight against an evil world system, Satan, and our own human flesh. I'll give you citations. You can check them out later. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 tells us our, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 4 says, We walk not according to the flesh, but we wage war according uh, to the Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 uh, challenges us uh, to share in the suffering as a good soldier. This is what I'm concerned that many of you are asleep to. That while many of us think uh, uh, we, we like the idea of the life of abundance that Jesus is offering to us, we have overlooked the conflict side of Christianity. And as a result of that, we're at risk to the enemy's attack. Satan attacks the church by blinding the minds of unbelievers to the gospel. Satan attempts to devastate those who are already believers to cripple them and to destroy their credibility as a witness. Satan attacks the church by attacking marriage and the family. Some of you have succumbed to that. Satan attacks the church through her leaders. Satan attacks the church through false religious systems, which is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 to stand and to clothe yourselves in the armor of God that you may be able to defend against the attack of the enemy but we'll get an hour and seven at church and then we'll carry on Monday through Saturday as though God isn't talking as though there isn't an enemy who wants to steal kill and destroy and the reason why this is so critical the reason why you must wake up and recognize that you're engaged in a warfare against an enemy that you're no match for apart from abiding in Christ and pressing into his word and relying on prayer, then you are subject to the potential of treason, which is where Paul ends. Perseverance in the gospel is the only assurance and protection for our faith. 
He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Very quickly, the treason here is a betrayal of trust. It's saying you believe something, but not really living it. That's treason. And it's not as though God's grace isn't superabounding anymore or that he's not forgiving. It's that we're putting ourselves at risk against an enemy for whom we are no match. And some have lost their way. We don't know exactly what it is that shipwrecked Hymenaeus and Alexander's faith. We just know that it was so serious that they wound up blaspheming the very Lord at one point they had proclaimed. And so Paul has turned them over, handed them over to Satan. Now, in Scripture, there are instances where handing over to Satan uh, is redemptive. Sometimes God hands over uh, to Satan, and it's redemptive. Job, Jesus, the Apostle Paul, Peter, the believers in tribulation in Revelation. But sometimes the handing over is punitive. King Saul, Judas Iscariot, the Corinthian church, Hymenaeus, and Alexander. And, and this is why we ought to... Uh, be earnest to pursue Jesus together because there is a place at which the church has a responsibility to remove someone from the covering, the protective covering of the body of Christ. This is what's happened here. It is all too common in our day for Christians to wreck their usefulness, their virtue, their sanctification by believing error. You know what the antithesis for it? You know what the answer for it is? To know the book. <clears throat> Are you fighting the good fight? Would someone who knows you closely, would, would that be one of the things they would say about you? He's fighting the good fight, man. Fighting the fight of faith. Working hard at a, a good conscience. Not perfect. Or... Are you flirting with wrecking your walk with Christ? Friends, none of us have a guarantee apart from abiding right here. You say, well, I wish you'd tell, talk a little more about some of those other belief systems. I don't need to. Treasury agents are trained by studying the real deal. Jesus is not a counterfeit. He's the real deal. And there's nothing so alluring so attractive in the world out there that should pull us away from him. To the degree that it does, friends, you are at risk. You might not think it now, but there might come a point where you would just simply walk away from Jesus. As a soldier for Christ, are you inordinately entangled with civilian affairs? That's one of the things Paul says. A good soldier doesn't entangle himself with worldly affairs. We have to live out there, to be sure. But we're supposed to be ambassadors out there. We're supposed to be missionaries out there. Are you still outside an experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see in the Apostle Paul, others around you, what life looks like when someone really comes to know Jesus. It changes them. Friend, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, can I just caution you? It may seem like you're in control of your life, but you're not. You're a slave to your own sin, 
and you're a hostage, a captive of the enemy of your soul and the enemy of God. And the only way out of everywhere else, his name is Jesus Christ. The aim of Jesus for your life is love, issuing from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. But we have an enemy that apart from Christ and apart from God's word and prayer, all of our intellect, ability, skill, and ingenuity are useless. Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for seeing me through this message. I pray, God, that your spirit has spoken uh, boldly to us, even as the church in the first century in Ephesus, that, that, we would, that we would awaken from our slumber, that we would recognize that though you may not be calling us to vocational ministry, to, to preaching, nevertheless, you've called us to live for you, and that there are things right now that you want to do in our lives all across this room, every single one of us. We're not home yet. We're called to press into Jesus Christ, to, to live out our faith, and to, uh, to learn how to cultivate a good conscience so that we might be honoring to you and also enlightening to others around us. God, I pray in Jesus' name that your spirit would move mightily in our church to make us something more as individuals than we have yet become and to make us together something that undeniably, as the world looks at it, they have no other choice but to conclude it is because Jesus is who he says he is. Thank you that you are our mighty fortress. We ask all this today in Christ's name. Amen. I uh, just want to mention as we close that if you would like to pray with someone, there'll be several of us up front uh, that will uh, remain after the service. Um, I want to mention uh, the uh, documentary Luther uh, as a production put out by Ligonier Ministries. It's available for free right now on YouTube. Uh, just, just to remember uh, kind of the reformation and the call on the church to continually reform, uh, I'd encourage you to check that out. Also want to mention again the importance of voting yes on Prop 115 so that we can dial back uh, the egregious practice of aborting children up to the moment that they are born in the state of Colorado. We're only one of five states uh, where that's still possible. So make your voice count, body of Christ. This is an issue God cares about immensely. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to close with a benediction, and what better way than to use Paul's words. Would you stand with me? Now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and all of those who have encountered Jesus Christ in the gospel say, Amen. Amen. God bless you, you're dismissed. Sorry I kept you a little long. I'm going to blame that on the pastor appreciation thing <laughs> this is so heavy and it's bringing me to my